what got me in, started with the solar was the eclipse. I always wanted to get a solar telescope and I kind of shied away from it because I didn't really know too much about it and I thought it just looked kind of complicated but after the 2017 eclipse I, I just decided you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna order the what I'm gonna learn everything I can about it and go from there and after diving in it's it's really not that hard I've been in the hobby for about geez since I was 12 so about 20 some years now and I, I did a lot of visual and started started out just like you know most everybody else with a Sears telescope for Christmas in today's episode we're going to be hearing the story of Tim Morrill an amateur astrophotographer from Iowa who takes some of the most stunning solar photos you'll ever see from an amateur telescope. He also does great deep sky and planetary work as well. So let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. What's <laughs> up, Tim? How you doing, man? Hey. Oh, doing pretty good, actually. We, uh, when when uh, Ian told me we were able to get you on the podcast, man, I was so excited. I have been looking at your solar images since, you know, since you've been putting them out there. I feel like forever. I think you have the best solar work I've ever seen. Well, hey, I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, I was telling Dustin while we were working on getting you connected, I was looking at your images. And do you guys, mm -hmm. I don't know if you're aware, but there's a space telescope that was called TRACE. It was, I forget the acronym now, but it was an orbit around the Earth. And its job was to look at the sun in H-alpha and, and, e, and uh, UV and a whole bunch of wavelengths. Lengths. And it, it was only an eight inch telescope about the size of a C8 up in orbit. And it mm -hmm. gave images of the filaments and the, the, the spicules and, and all of the stuff. Uh, it, and I had never seen such a detailed image of sun solar activity until I looked at your images, man. Right. So I am, I mean, these are like amazing. It reminds me of a trace image. So tell me what, what, how do you do this stuff? What do you have? And tell us all about what you got going. Well, uh, okay. Uh, for my solar setup, I have I've got a a lunt, a one hundred millimeter double stack, and then that wasn't quite giving me the detail that I wanted. So I was looking around, and all I could find was like really, really expensive. To jump up from there was like a, a, a lunt, one fifty two. Oh yeah, it gets expensive and fast, it, man. Yeah, the solar is expensive. Well, well um, you're buying that huge hydrogen alpha filter, you know. Yep it's it's difficult to make so uh, along comes uh daystar with a uh cork and i that was kind of new i was like wow that's kind of neat and it's pretty affordable so i bought the uh package deal with the 80 millimeter and it came with a cork i also bought the uh two inch rejection filter so that came and i checked it out it was pretty cool and then i thought you know what I wonder if you could put one of these corks on a, a larger telescope. So I started looking around and I found um, a decent priced Explorer Scientific 152. And I just decided to go ahead and try it. A lot of people kept telling me, you got to put a, um, a full aperture 
uh, rejection filter on them. This is true if you want to use them for visual, but if you just want to use it in this aperture, if you want to just use it for imaging, uh, the two inch rejection filter that Daystar makes is uh, just fine. Yeah. So you do that to prevent there being a laser inside <laughs> inside of your, <laughs> yeah, your exactly. optical tube. But you were if just you like, man, fuck it. I'm going for it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Well, I'm not going to stick my head up there. So I was like, oh, I want to try yeah. it. Yeah, but you're gonna stick your camera sensor back there and just yep. set the thing on fire. Well, if without the rejection filter, it will burn the <laughs> diagonal. <laughs> Trust me. Yeah. Uh, so, anyways, oh, that's the uh, best, man. Well, what about this quark? What? Tell me, is it a is it a narrow band filter? What are some of the uh, uh, characteristics of that? No, it's a little bit different because it's a hydrogen alpha filter, all built in. Uh, it's about the size of an eyepiece. And it's got a, uh, the, the model that I have has a uh, four times uh, Barlow built in. And nice. uh, that's all the filter that you need other than a rejection filter. But if you have a scope like 80 millimeter and below, you don't need a rejection filter. That's the only filter that you it's need. It's just when you're really gathering a lot of light. Right. Then there's always, just, always just to throw away the extra photons of which there are plenty. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So, so right. Exactly. Right. What's the bandpass? How, how, how wide is the filter itself? What rank? I believe, from? I think that's a half. Yeah. It, correct me if I'm wrong, Dustin. Yeah. So wait, I, I want to get into why you wanted to go to a bigger scope. So you had a hundred millimeter and you just didn't mm -hmm. like, I'm guessing you didn't like that. You couldn't get the resolution on target because your focal length was reduced, right? Like you didn't have the magnification right. you wanted or what? The magnification wasn't there and the aperture isn't there because right. what I, what I found out is when you're imaging the sun, it's just like imaging planets. Mm. You take a short video and your exposure time is in the milliseconds. So the more light you can gather, the uh, quicker the uh, exposure time can be. And uh, that I needed more aperture. And the uh, prominences are fainter. So all around, it was better. I mean, I got really, really good results with the 100 millimeter. But yeah. I, I, one thing about me is I always strive for something just a little bit better, you know, it's just a little bit better. So uh, that's what drove me to get the uh, bigger scope and uh, do it that way. And yeah, I mean, that whole setup is under a couple grand. Yeah, it's, it's amazing because the other, the solar scopes, like the 152, that's got to be a $10,000 telescope. And when you told me you mm -hmm. were shooting this with a, you know, it's an acro, it's an acromat, right? Yep. A 152 acro. So it's the, mm -hmm. the least expensive 152 available. Mm -hmm. And you're just using a, another very inexpensive part on the back of it with a rejection filter. And mm -hmm. you're producing what I arguably the best solar images done by an amateur astronomer. I mean, with, with equipment that uh, anyone in the hobby could afford anyone. I mean, you're not mm -hmm. talking about 10 grand, you know? Right. And right. It's it's unbelievable. I mean, these photos look like you. It had to be done from like Tony said. It it really looks like this had to come from a spaceborne telescope. Yeah, let me just mention real quick for people listening. Go to stardustphotography.net and check this out. Also, he is uh, at Tim with two M's one one three eight in uh, Instagram. Check out his stuff. You got to see this. Yeah. So uh, it's not all the equipment. A lot of it has to do with the atmosphere. 
because that plays a big role in how much detail you can get. And another thing is that I've discovered the the filaments and the chromosphere, you want to keep your captures fairly short because if you do it over, say, two minutes or more, when you're stacking it, those features will start to blur. Yeah, because the sun's uh, so, very active. Yeah. Yeah. So let's yeah. talk about it's, let's talk about the filaments, the chromosphere. You 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 got a lot of you got a lot to teach me about the sun. You guys both know more <laughs> about our star than I do. So teach me about the sun. Tim, you shoot it all the time. You've got pictures of it. You're the portrait shooter of the sun. You know? Well, like, I tell uh, you, I I am really good at taking pictures, but I not really good at the science part of it. <laughs> I know that white light is like the uh, photosphere, and above that is the uh, chromosphere, which you can't see unless you're using the narrowband hydrogen alpha, which is where you get all the cool stuff. But, I mean, in white light, you get to see the uh, sunspots and, you know, some surface detail. It's not really the surface of the sun because it's pretty much just burning gas, but... Right. It's, it's yeah, that's like the, saying the flame in your fireplace has a surface. Right, exactly. You're you're right about the science. I mean, you're absolutely right. The mm-hmm. the the sun is obviously very complicated, but the the interior of the sun has a lot of different zones and, and things that we can't see, but the first zone that we can see using telescopes is the photosphere, and that is where it's that's where you tend to look when you get one of those mylar looking filters or one of those glass all aperture filters that go over your telescope and you see a white disk that has limb darkening on the side with uh, little spots all over it. That's the sunspot region. And there, and that is the uh, chromos or the photosphere, like you said, mm-hmm. but when you, but, and and you can see it in white light and that's the, you know, all of the, all of the colors of the spectrum. But if you narrow that spectrum down quite a bit uh, to look at only a small part of the spectrum, in particular, the H alpha part of the spectrum, then you get to see the chromosphere. And this is a region that's, that is the photosphere is about 5,500 degrees Kelvin and the chromosphere is a little bit higher, uh, about 65, 7,000 degrees Kelvin. And they, for all the uh, listeners out there, Tony, um, that I'm sure that everybody thinks about temperature and Kelvin in their daily they do. lives. <laughs> of course they do, especially if you're a scientist, because uh, th- and zero degrees Kelvin, just so as your reference, is where the, all motion of atoms stops. So yeah, and, and the micro the, yep. the micro absolute zero, the microwave background is about three degrees, and it goes on up from there. So we're talking really hot. And the uh, the chromosphere is this layer right above the photosphere that you can see if you filter out all the other light except for. 6563, I think, uh, angstroms, which is H-alpha, and that's what you're looking at. And the reason I asked you about the width of your filter is that the narrower it is in angstroms or nanometers, however you want to do it, you can see more detail. So a cheaper H-alpha filter that maybe the the PST or something like that, which is three quarters of an angstrom, you can see lots of cool stuff. You can see active regions, and you can see prominences and, and, and filaments, but you get that down to a half an angstrom or even better, a quarter angstrom, you can see much more contrast, a whole lot more detail. And you're working, mm-hmm. it sounds like, at a half angstrom, so you get to see a lot more of the filaments and the structure, the magnetic structure of the sun. And all of this, by the way, is a plasma, which means that it follows magnetic field lines of the sun, and that's where you get all these really cool bright and dark areas and the and the uh, flow of, of gas along the lines of the magnetic field. So... It is fascinating to watch. It is fascinating. What you're talking about right now, because it changes so rapidly, it's the only thing that astronomers watch that changes so rapidly. I mean, by the minute, 
and you mm-hmm. can just you can see these things. And, and Tim, you've actually done this. You've done like um, like video style stuff where you you've actually put animations together and things to see this movement and these changes. Yeah, uh, that's one thing I'd like to do more of, but uh, it's it all depends on the atmosphere. And that's one thing that I struggle with around here a lot. But time lapse is really, really cool to do on the sun, especially when there's a lot of activity. And you're in Iowa? Yeah. So Iowa. Yeah, I it's <laughs> I deal with a lot of uh, humidity in the summer and uh, I'm always fighting the jet stream and that really messes with the uh, scene. So I have to wait until the sun is at the, the highest point in the sky and then I run out take some snaps and that usually is decent most of the time. And uh, one thing that the uh, weather has taught me around here is (laughs) to make do with not so good data and make it decent. Right. So you've just gotten very good at processing. With the sun, there's very little that can be done other than uh, sharpening it some. And, uh, but it's mostly the, the, uh, deep sky stuff that it's taught me you just got to get a lot more data and uh it's just processing it's just it's kind of tricky yeah i that to me is the uh, real art to all this astro imaging is to once you've gotten these things to me the the hard thing at the telescope is just getting your freaking focus right once you've got focus <laughs> but everybody has all these automatic stuff you just say focus please and it focuses and boom you're good <laughs> to go but me i was used to sitting around with a knob and going what the hell and all these masks and things to converge on my focusing, but that's not, I guess, an issue anymore. So now it's all about the processing. And that is where, uh, these really, these really eye popping images come out. Mm-hmm. And that's well, what I keeps you what excited, you Tim, that... is, is the sun. I mean, I, I feel like it's, I never really got into it. I took one picture of it and then I thought if I take any more pictures, it's going to be kind of the same picture. So, mm, uh, you see, I mean, you've that's got a, kind of what I, th- what I kind of thought too, at the beginning, but there's it changes so much and yeah it, it just uh, it always keeps me coming back it's like you know yeah. each feature has its own unique uh char- characteristics and it yeah that's what brings me back it's like ooh, yeah i think you might change your mind dustin the first time you ever catch a filament eruption going off or a flare happening uh mm-hmm. you know or even a even a prominence eruption off this off the limb so i mean i think you change your mind because it is stunning to watch and you'd be like whoa look what i just caught and you'd be making gifts and you'd be posting on instagram and saying look what i got and it's mm-hmm. really the the motion is what i think would capture most people's attention certainly does mine yeah it is it is fascinating and you're probably the only astronomer with a tan you know if you think about it nobody's shooting during the day (laughs) yeah that's true (laughs) nobody's shooting during the day (laughs) especially around around your eyes boy he's got tan eyes (laughs) (laughs) never look through the telescope it's a good look folks it's a good look yes (laughs) no but it is it is very i mean you know because with with uh with the weather around here and uh i'm limited to like five or six i get five or six clear nights a month so i thought and what got me in, started with the solar was the eclipse i always wanted to get a solar telescope and i kind of shied away from it because i didn't really know too much about it and i thought it just looked kind of complicated but after the 2017 eclipse i I just decided, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to order the one, I'm going to learn everything I can about it. 
and go from there. And after diving in, it's it's really not that hard. It's there's you know an adjustment period that it's a different from nighttime. But if you're used to taking pictures of planets, that's it's easy, pretty much the same. You mean to tell me that you started in August 2017? Mm-hmm. And now you are taking these kinds of images. That's a, that's, that is a fast learning curve. That's, that's, that's hiking <laughs> up that thing pretty quick. I mean, you did a great, this is great stuff. You could never tell that this is like a relatively new endeavor for you. Yeah, it, that's, that's when I started. Uh, I've been in the hobby for about, geez, since I was 12. So about 20 some years now. And I, I did a lot of visual and started, uh, started out just like, you know, most everybody else with a Sears telescope for Christmas. <laughs> what got me started was uh, the po- Apollo 13, that movie that got me uh, really oh, into that's space. A good movie. Yeah. Yeah. And the moon. And that, that's what sparked all my interest in it. And um, ever since uh, I got that telescope and, and I just looked at the moon for the first time, it just I gradually grew into, uh, I was buying uh, used telescopes on Astromart and, using those and testing them out and swapping out using them for a while. And then uh, thinking, Oh, I want to test that one out, sell them, buy a different one. So I did that for quite a few years. And then, um, I remember with the, the weather around here, cause you really get into the hobby and then the weather stops you. So you start to, you know, slow down. And, uh, I never really lost complete interest in the hobby. It's just, it, it, it uh, the interest slows down when you can't keep doing it when you want to. So I ended up coming up with the idea. I wanted to get a dome because I was really tired of dragging all my gear out, <laughs> getting <laughs> yeah. it all set up. And the forecast <laughs> was clear for all night. Okay. And then you set up at dawn, you go in, eat, you go back out and it's cloudy and it stays cloudy all night. So I was like, you got to right. slip all that in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I ended up uh, getting online, and this was probably back in 2000, no, this was probably 99, 98, uh, got online and looked up domes, and I decided I'm going to try and build one instead of buying one, because there wasn't too many options for, you know, your average Joe back then. Yeah, but you live in Iowa. You could have got one of those silo domes, couldn't you? And just yeah, modify it? I thought of that. I looked at a lot of those. <laughs> <laughs> I actually did go. I stopped at one of my neighbors that had one, and I asked him, I said, you want to sell that to me? He's like, no, no, I'm using it for storage. So that didn't work <laughs> I'm using out. it for my grain, man. <laughs> yeah. It, actually, he kept his mower inside this little one that I was looking at. But <laughs> Oh, man, I'll build you a shed. Give me your dog. Yeah. <laughs> I, I found this one guy online, and he came, He had these plans, and he showed how he kind of did it. And I ended up uh, just drawing an eight-foot circle out on the concrete floor of our garage and then plotting out the arc onto a four-by-eight sheet of plywood. And then I cut that arc out and divided that into four and cut it into four pieces so that gave me a pattern so if you just take all those pieces and overlap them like six inches and screw them to together you can uh, just keep doing that and make a complete circle so i did that and built the uh the main room the round room was pretty easy just 
build two of those rings, one for the bottom, one for the top, run two by fours in between. And then uh, I did the same thing for the ribs of the dome and the two ribs for the uh, shutter. And then I was thinking, how the heck am I going to get this thing to spin? <laughs> so I, I went to the hardware store, got some uh, casters, uh, wheels, mounted those to the top ring of the uh, building, set the dome up there. It kept getting in a bind. So I came up with the idea of getting some golf balls and using those as bearings. And I made two little tracks for the dome side and the uh, roof or the uh, building and just fill the golf balls in there and that thing worked like butter so <laughs> that was uh got that set up and put a pier in there and at the time i had a uh, william optics 100 millimeter and that one had the uh, tmb it was the tmb triplet glass fluorite and uh that lasted i ended up having to use quarter inch wood for the skin of the dome and I had to stain it and uh, coat it and I had to keep doing that and the moisture around here just got to it after about five years so that only lasted for about five years but during that time that's when I just about I always wanted to get into imaging the night sky because I kept seeing uh, pictures in sky and telescope and stuff and I was like you know, visually, planets were always very satisfying to me because you could really see, like, Jupiter's my favorite thing to look at. But the deep sky, there's, you know, it's hit and miss with the objects depending on how dark your skies are. And it, it's, I always wanted to see what was really there. And you can kind of see visually, but not all of it. So I ended up buying a, what was that, a Starlight Express? ccd camera and i got it set up and back then there wasn't as much information and living way out here in the middle of nowhere in a state that the hobby is not really that popular there wasn't really too many people to talk to and find out information so i kind of got frustrated with it because i couldn't quite figure out what i was doing with it so the Starlight up, Express, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. And this, so, you were trying to image Jupiter with it? No, I was trying to image Deep Sky with it. Oh, just, oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. And this was clear back in like Windows 98, 2000 time. Oh, we're talking mid-90s then or yeah. late-90s. Oh, yeah. 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 There was nothing back then. Yeah. It was yeah. It was tough back then. So it's it's been like a, a hell of a journey for you then. I mean, you've been all of, from building, you know, your own dome, getting through the equipment, really testing the waters on something everybody was telling you you could not do because you were going to shoot a laser through your camera. I mean, this has been a, <laughs> this has been a monster journey. Yeah, it, it has been. And uh, up until uh, it's been about three going on four years now, I, the images that you see are pretty much where that's where I started was about four years ago in the imaging. Till now. Yeah. Well, you and I have been talking just through Instagram for, you know, at least mm -hmm. uh, well over a year, probably two years where we first touched base yep. and just kind of. And, um, you know, I've been a big fan of your work the whole time, but it's it's amazing watching how quickly because you say that it's, you know, three, four years, but that's from starting to having some of the best images out there. And you think about it, that filling in those months, how much your images have to progress and 
it's uh, it's been absolutely incredible watching that. And I, I feel like it's still progressing like that. Well, I tell you one thing about me is <laughs> I always try. I'm ne- it must be the artistic part of me. I'm never happy with yeah. what my end result. I, I always think, oh, I can do better than that. Or if I could you just get a little a bit better data. <laughs> yeah. Every astrophotographer yeah, so. in the world, you're uh, you're singing the anthem right now for every. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I could do better. Yeah, oh, man. Exactly. It's just, oh, I see this one thing. Yeah. Everyone else in the world's <laughs> like, oh, this is the best I've ever seen. And you're like, it sucks. I can do better. And then there's this this guy on Instagram. I don't know if you've heard of him. Uh, Gibson Picks. He keeps putting these. Oh, uh, that guy. Don't bring on. him up. Don't talk I, about his stuff. I no, gotta that's... keep up with him. <laughs> you know, he keeps putting these pictures out. I, I can't keep up. Oh uh, yeah. yeah, we don't talk about that guy, man. What yeah. is his deal? You're gonna hurt Tony's feelings because he's sitting there cradling his eyepiece right now. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I've got. I have memories. I have the images in my head. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, just well, they're just just I'm blurry enough my first for you image to appreciate. Soon. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna take an image here soon. I'm gonna yeah. like image, and then I'll be famous on Insta Famous. No, and- you won't. But that's all right. So, <laughs> but you won't. Yeah, yeah, you won't. But uh, Tim. I want to know, Tim, I mean, this has brought you a long way. I mean, obviously, over the last, you know, month and a half, you just became one of our uh, top five. So OPT team, top five shooters. Mm -hmm. Congratulations on that. Um, Yeah, it's it's a big deal here. It's a it's very I mean, we have, you know, the biggest concentration of imagers in the world in this building. And, you know, everybody Uh I mean, we scour them and you talk about people that are picky about images, you know, come stand in this room. Everybody's like, oh, I've seen better with everybody. But everybody here is like this guy kills it you know really? so oh yeah absolutely absolutely and you also just became a mead ba- uh brand ambassador congratulations yes, on I that did. that's a yep. big deal too it is a big deal I, i'm very uh humbled you know it's great to be part of the, the team i mean yeah if you think about the the journey in four years going from hey i'm going to test the waters with this equipment to being in a place where it's like Hey, people want to send me equipment to test new stuff and to try new things. That's pretty. That's pretty cool. It is really cool. I didn't ever think that that would be something that would come about. So yeah, it's it's all new waters to me, and it it's great. What do you think about the social media community? Because you're you're a big part of. You have what forty fifty thousand people that look at your stuff daily. Yeah, about forty. I don't know, 44,000 or something now. Uh, um, about 44,212. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the exact number. <laughs> As of this recording. <laughs> yeah, while I'm watching it right now. Um, so so what's that like every time you make a post knowing that it's going out to, you know, a, a basketball arena? Right now, uh, at first I was kind of intimidated because it's like, oh, I don't know what people are going to say about this when I first started. But I've found that the Instagram community is the most welcoming and supportive community in the uh, Astro community that I've come across. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Everybody is very supportive and uh, willing to help out if you got a you know question. They're not. There's other places that I've been that you know they're kind of people are set in their ways and. You know, know, I'm a photographer at heart and um, Mm -hmm. I found that the photography, like general photography, whether it's like portrait photography or landscape or whatever, uh, outside of one of my Mm -hmm. good friends, Travis Burke, I would say has been almost entirely a negative experience for me. It's a very different community than the astronomy community. I agree with you in astronomy. It's like you can't find people that like they go out of their way to help 
and to be part of helping uh-huh. and, and to just like contribute things. You know, I've never seen mm-hmm. anybody yeah. like asking for things, but in photography, it's all like, oh, let me, let me keep my secrets and let me put this out there in a way that's like fine art that's better than everybody else's. And I don't like that. Well, yeah. One thing that kind of gets me because I, uh, I take uh, macro shots of insects yeah. and whatnot. And I've, I'm on a few Facebook groups and that makes it, a lot more sense with in landscape. Iowa. Yeah, I bet you yeah. Got, you guys got all the bugs from the country, the whole country there in Iowa, don't you? Yeah, here. That's <laughs> that's in Florida. Yeah. Oh, you said that's Florida. <laughs> Mosquitoes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if there's a bug, we got it. Man, if you drive through <laughs> Iowa, it changes the color of your car. <laughs> it does. The windshield, especially. Yeah. But I, yeah, I get what you're saying with the, the community, with, uh, you know, just like DSLR photography there's been several times when i've had comments where it's like if you edit it at all it's not as good as just taking the just pushing the shutter and i i've never understood that well in the spirit of uh being inclusive and and not maintaining secrets like in the photography world what advice would you give to somebody? I'm interested in the upcoming transit, so I'm sure you're going to be imaging that. What advice mm-hmm. would you give somebody who's beginning solar photography? Well, and actually, let me expand that. Deep space as well. Just getting into the hobby, what do you wish you had known when you first got started that you know now? And can you pass that on to any newcomers that might be listening? Well, let's see. Uh, for solar, don't necessarily have to spend a whole bunch of money to get really good results like that's one of the things that i thought that you had to do especially now as far as advice on the uh, transit since there's not very much uh activity on the sun um even if you just have white light filters you're gonna get really good results that way so don't really feel left out if you don't have a hydrogen alpha uh, telescope to capture it would you um, recommend just trying to image the whole thing as it's happening, like in some kind of short exposure time video mode, or would you say do it in discrete intervals? Oh, what I was, what I'm planning on doing is trying to get like um, just a partial disc where it's going to cross and do a time lapse where I would so really take, zoom in then. Yeah, but not so much that you can't see like the the limb of the sun. So like half a disc or so ah, is what okay, I was thinking, yeah. and then do, uh, do I would I was going to do like short exposures, short uh, captures, like thousand frames every five minutes, ten minutes or so, and then uh, I, after processing all that data then make like a time lapse. Well, good. Well, I got to say, you know, your comment about it not being as expensive as you thought is actually really incredible because that didn't used to be true. No. The the Daystar filters back in the late or early 80s were on order of $5,000. I think that was a half angstrom filter and you mm-hmm. had to spend, and it was climate, you know, it was temperature controlled and, and it was really clunky. But now those mm-hmm. the, this was a Edelon filter, which is the style of filter that it was. I'm not sure what, what the lunt filters are now, but uh, I'm sure they, they must be at lunch, but yeah, that price has gone down from, you know, five to six or even seven and a half K, uh, mm-hmm. down to just a few hundred dollars. And so that is astonishing. Uh, the, yeah. The, and the, the, the I think drop. the quarks have really, uh, made it more accessible to a lot more people. I agree. I agree. And plus it's just a, it's a cool way to shoot. Yeah. <laughs> I think they're right around, uh, 
eleven or twelve hundred per quart. Yeah, but for and, half angstrom, you, that's pretty good. And that's what you're paying yeah. for. You're paying for that that bandwidth. Are they? Is there such a thing as double stack for that? I mean, I know some of them you you put more than one on. Uh, they say that it's already double stacked, and I don't quite understand that. But uh, I mean, the results. I would have to say, yeah, because my LUNT is uh, double stacked, and it's right on par with it. So, Well, if you think about the price difference, right, you're talking about getting like a 152 solar scope. It's, you're, you know, what, eight to 10 grand, something like that. Um, but then an Explore Scientific, what'd you pay for your Explore Scientific 152? Uh, I think I got it on sale for like 850. So 850 plus 1200. So for $2,000, you got the aperture that you were looking to get with, you know, that, that mm-hmm. increased resolution on target instead of spending the eight or 9,000 or 10,000. Right. Know? And so obviously, and obviously it's, it's not the same thing, but clearly you can't, you can't argue with the results you're getting. Exactly. And one thing to remember is the, uh, the refractor doesn't have to have like, it doesn't have to be a triplet ED or fluoride or FPL 53 glass. Right. Because that's only for uh, color correction. And when you're imaging the sun, that doesn't play a factor. Yeah. A lot of people just shoot in mono and then change the color after. Yeah. Yeah. Because the color camera, it's mostly only going to pick up uh, data on the red pixels and a little bit on the green pixels. And yeah. And, and so that's... you're throwing away data on the blue. Yeah, 75% of your pixels are covered in green and blue, and all you're really mm-hmm. getting is the red. Right. Do you worry much about things like flats and, and darks for solar imaging? I use uh, Fire Capture, and that's an excellent program to use for the sun because you can put the camera on there, put the uh, lens cap on, tell it to take darks, and it automatically takes the darks, and it adds those to the capture as your uh pulling down the uh, the video frames and it does the same with flats and a lot of people get kind of confused how to do flats uh, on the sun if you're zoomed in pretty good where you can get the the whole the sun to cover the whole field of view uh, the best thing to do is just take it out of focus so you don't see any surface detail and then fire capture to take uh, flats and it will apply those to all the captures. Yeah, because the sun is an extended object. You can you can just make it out. The idea is to get the, all of the pixels illuminated as best you can, and you've got a really great, nice big thing there to do right. that with. Yep. So, exactly. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. I was just going to say, as long as you uh, make sure that you uh, back the focus out to where you don't get any surface detail, then the flats work perfect. But if you don't, then the flats will have like dark blotches. So you do a lot of uh, deep space photography as well, a lot of the DSOs, and mm-hmm. um, you've been really pushing those a lot more over the last year. I've noticed you've been getting pretty heavy into that, and, and your stuff is phenomenal. Um, what? Thank you. What equipment are you using for that? I just recently got uh, Astrophysics 1100 mount, and I put, because I had a Mead LX850, and with a 14-inch uh, F8, and that worked great for visual. But I wanted to start taking like 10, 15-minute exposures, mm-hmm. and I needed a little bit beefier mount, so I switched over to this mount, and that's that's really opened that up, and uh, I put a, um, a ZWO 1600mm camera on that, 
I recently bought a used uh, Official Stellar RH200 and I had a QHY16200 on a different setup that I sold and then I, I took took that camera and put it on there. So those yeah. are my two uh, deep you got uh, you got some high end equipment there. Alfacina Stellare makes some of the best telescopes in the world. That um, you said you have an RH two hundred, so that that yep. eight inch telescope has a Mangan mirror in it. So it's um, yes. Instead yeah. of coating the top of the mirror, I thought it was it was really cool what they do. They coat the back of the mirror, so the lens refracts through the glass, hits the mirror, and then refracts back through the glass, and you get corrected images out past full frame. On a scope that's like F3, isn't it? F3, I think, is what that scope is. Yep. yep. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. It's amazing. It really that's is. like my favorite <laughs> favorite one to use now. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Alfacina makes incredible, incredible telescopes. But that's one that I feel like yeah. um, anybody that owns one of the RH200s is always just like, oh, this is my baby. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, I can't believe how flat the field of view is either. The only other uh, telescopes that I've used that kind of comes close in the optical quality is like uh, a Takahashi. Yeah. Yeah. Talk makes great stuff as well. You know, we actually here in the building, we have the first Takahashi reflector ever made. Uh, uh, the corrected, it's a corrected RC. And uh, it's, oh. yeah, serial number 001. Tony, when you were just here, I think you saw it, right? On the conference. Yeah, it's beautiful. Oh, it's yeah. absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, that thing yep. is cherished <laughs> by everyone. It's so cool, man. <laughs> well, okay, I want to switch gears for just a moment. And Tim, you, we want to we want to get you in on this discussion too. Dustin and I were talking before the podcast started. He goes up to me and I'm talking about, the hobby and amateur astronomy. And what did you say to me, Dustin, about we're going to, we're going to do an entire podcast on that. But if you need the pro if you need to practice right now, Tony, let's go ahead and let you practice. Yeah, go, go for it. Yeah. Man. I figured you'd, so go I ahead. figured you'd pull something like this. What I said is I think that, I think it's ridiculous that people are putting, I mean, these, these investments from people's lives into this hobby. And when you talk to amateur astronomers, I mean, I I deal with both on a daily basis, amateur astronomers and professional astronomers, probably more uniquely situated to do that than any person that I, I can think of, right? Because I have to deal with both every single day at every level. And so, and the staff here as well. But I don't like the idea that there's this importance placed on distinguishing amateurs as amateurs. I don't like that. I feel like if you call an amateur astronomer an astronomer, that somehow that becomes offensive to the astronomy community and the professionals. And it's like, where else do you find that ego is so important that you have to distinguish how many years of schooling somebody went through in order to do it? It's like saying, well, you know, Michelangelo, he didn't go to art school. So let's not let's call him an amateur or Da Vinci. <laughs> right. I mean, he's clearly an amateur inventor. Clearly. Okay. He never went to engineering school. There's a lot wrong with what you just said, but let me get Tim's let me put on this. First of all, do you consider yourself an amateur astronomer or do you consider yourself an astronomer? I consider myself an amateur astronomer just because I don't put myself on the same level as other people. Maybe because I'm too hard on myself. It's because you get chased <laughs> out of the star party with pitchforks. That's why. 
Yeah, that's true too. Don't you feel, first of all, that you're an amateur astronomer? First of all, because you're not getting paid. That's that's one issue. He is about getting paid, you, but that's that's well, okay. But as an as a working astronomer, you're not getting paid as that. You're getting paid as an imager, an astro imager, or whatever it is that that you do on a nightly basis. So you're he's getting paid, getting to, paid to take pictures of space, and I'd say there are certainly people at NASA who share that. Who get paid to take okay. pictures of space, and they call themselves astronomers. Okay, I'll, fine. He's getting paid to do okay. imaging with a telescope, as many astronomers do. Did well. That's that's what typically amateur goes for. But do all people in Tim's in Tim's situation get paid to do that? And are do they do as much or the same kind of imaging as Tim? So does let's see. I, and not get paid. So okay, forget the forget no, the getting paid. Let's explore part for this a fallacy. I don't want to get lost. In let's it. explore the fallacy. I, <laughs> I like the slippery slope reasoning right. that you're opening the door to here. So let's see. Is Tim? Is Tim? Can we start there? Is Tim a professional astronomer then? And I would say no. He's not. And the reason I I'd say no is that it it there is a level of training that goes into being called an astronomer okay. that is not necessarily evident in Tim's work or in what he's sure. Doing. And what is that training? Now, where does that like where does it stop? When is the day that you hit the mark that says you are now professional? That is a mm. well defined training program called getting you know an education that goes from uh, high school to bachelor's and then graduate school and on to getting a PhD. And that's important because you need to have knowledge of the state of the science that you're working in before, and you need training even after that. Once you've gotten your PhD, you still need apprenticeship as a postdoctoral student or a postdoctoral graduate. So where is the line though? That's further very training complicated. There. Where is the line? It, it seems like at some point there you're no... walking this path and then all of a sudden you cross this line and then everybody's like, oh, you're an astronomer now. You can drop amateur. Uh, I don't think at any point you would. At the, at the point at which you're getting trained, you're never considered an astronomer. You're considered a Ph.D. candidate or a graduate student. You're not ever calling yourself an astronomer until you've gotten the Ph.D. And at that point, you can consider yourself one. So I think it's misleading to say that 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 people who are working in the field, who are self who are self-taught, who are I'm not diminishing their competence absolutely probably know more about astronomy in general as many astronomers would know yet i think it's misleading to call that person an astronomer because of the lack of training that's involved and i think that the uh, the big distinction there is what you would know to become an astronomer and you you use the da Vinci thing, but I would argue that artists also have to go through a period of training or at least apprenticeship of some kind before they can be considered uh, much of an artist in in many realms. Okay. But it's much more nebulous there. And I, I, I what get about it engineers? That, you know, I make what about engineers? Let's take da Vinci training again. It's, it's, there are amateur engineers. There are people who just build and design things quite well. But they are not professionals. Okay. They're just they, they don't have the training that goes into being. I think training is important. Yeah. You need to know what you know the where you come from, where this where the state of the science I is. I think so too. You consider yourself a professional. I think so too. And that's why I'm making this statement. Because training is important. And that's why people like Tim Puckett, we've had on this podcast, who have ex who have discovered mm -hmm. more that's supernovae true. than any people walking the earth has never gone to school for it. This guy can speak on astronomy as well. He made one of the best tracking telescopes in the world out of a cotton gin. Out of a cotton gin. He did things that no school in the world is going to teach you to do. He's clearly competent. He's put the science and created entire networks for citizen science. But 
He never walked a path where some university could tell him, you are now someone that we will give a respected title to. I think that's foolish. I think that people can do these things and it, it doesn't matter. I mean, look, if, if school is so important for the titles, how is it that the many of the wealthiest people in the world, the creator of you know Facebook, the creator of Google, all these people, Apple, they never finished school, not even a four-year degree. But we can't distinguish them as professionals. And especially, I mean, those aren't, those aren't artists, right? But they don't have- And they're also not scientists. Right, sure. But what I'm saying is, what about these citizen scientists that are finding all of these things? There, many have been more successful than the professionals who get buried trying to write their- They're not even doing the science because they're constantly buried, at least that's what they tell me, with trying to find funding. So what they're, what they're really spending a lot of their time doing is trying to find funding. And, you know, I'm not trying to take away from them at all. But what I am saying is I don't think it's important to use that word to segregate the community that's all really trying to do the same thing. Is it really segregating, though? I mean, I'm with you on a lot of this, Dustin. I really am. And I am not going to sit here and pretend that there's not some good old boys network of, of uh, an ivory tower bullshit that goes on in science, because it absolutely does. And I get that egos are all over the place. So I'm with you on all of that. All my, my main point on it, though, is that it's misleading for a person who has, you know, to call someone an astronomer implies a certain amount of training and education that goes with it. And to not have that is, I think, misleading. And you differentiate that by calling them an amateur astronomer. I personally don't think it's a disparaging thing to say. You, you're taking umbrage with it. I don't know. What about you, Tim? Do you think it's insulting to be called an amateur astronomer based on your knowledge and skill level? <laughs> no, I've never taken offense to it or anything like that. But I, I do get both of your guys' uh, point of view. Um, I <laughs> take the middle line. <laughs> take the middle oh, line. You got a politician Be here. Safe. No, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> but I was just gonna say. But I think I tend to uh, <laughs> lean more towards uh, Tony's. Uh, yeah, and I think I think most people would. And don't get me wrong, I'm not offended by it. What I think the problem is is people that are offended by it on the other side. It's not that I don't think you're going to find mm -hmm. any amateurs like like Tim. Nobody's going to be offended by somebody saying that. What I think people find offensive, in, and I've seen this at star parties and events, and even when I've given talks, is the people that get offended are the astronomers. If you use the word astronomer with someone that uh -huh. hasn't been to school. So like if I called Tim Puckett, who has more, he's been awarded more times by everyone, including the United States government. He's been on the news so many times you can't count them for all of his discoveries. If I called Tim an astronomer, there would be astronomers that would take offense to that. That's what I'm saying is ridiculous. Yeah. And I got to, you know, so we live in a time where there has never been more contributions by just regular folks, people who do not have professional training than ever before. I mean, they are, these citizen science initiatives are hugely valuable and important and smart people are getting involved all the time. The issue that you're raising is the ones of, of astronomers who might take issue with the amateurs getting involved there's a term for them and they're called assholes oh. and they really oh, see, that's what they I really know. are and they're that's in everywhere you go and i will tell you where, where i see egos involved the most isn't whether an amateur has contributed to a paper or not and isn't really a, a proper astronomer or scientist it's the ones who insist that you call them an astrophysicist 
what's the difference between an astronomer and an astrophysicist? Ego. That's it. That's all there is. Yeah. And you can always a red flag goes up for me when I hear somebody astrophysicist so and so is here today. I'm like, oh man, this guy's a dick. Because I you could just tell he's into the title, and it sounds cooler than to be an astronomer. And and so that's another area I've noticed where where egos get involved. And those people that you're talking about, Dustin. Yeah, they're they're just going to be gen- the assholery is just going to be in every part yeah. of their life. You know what's that. funny is when Stephen Swancoat was here, we were driving to the observatories together, and he told me a joke. He said, "Dustin, what's the difference in a medical doctor and someone who's not?" And I said, "What?" And he said, "The person that's not won't die in debt." And he said, <laughs> "He said that's the difference, right?" And so yeah, yeah. it's like I don't know. I just think that it doesn't it doesn't truly matter. I think the people that want to do something and that they put their heart and souls in it can come from four years from taking no pictures to taking pictures that are awarded by NASA for being the best out there, like Tim here, yeah. right? I think that people that have the drive and the passion to do something will do it. And I don't think that we need to have terms to segregate them or to say these people aren't as good as the the other people. And I just, you know, I, I just don't think it's smart. I'm with you, man. And and this isn't new. I mean, we've had people like Clyde Tombaugh, the discoverer of Pluto in the 1930s. All he did was he got his homemade telescope out and set it up in his backyard. He also had access to a blink comparator and he was able to find the, the, uh, the planet Pluto. So yeah. Obviously, well, an citizen making made, an important <laughs> contribution to science. You made fun of me before the podcast because the first thing I said was, it's crazy, those ancient Egyptians, how they aligned things with the stars. And you're like, oh, damn, you're taking it all the way back to Egypt, huh? Oh, we're going we're ancient going, history now. You know what? Well, let me just tell you, these ancient Sumerians, <laughs> they these ancient Sumerians actually had to have some training, right? I mean, you couldn't just go up there and predict whether the crops were going to grow on this particular season. You know, and have people listen to you unless you were trained. Yeah. They, so even then, well, there was They training. did stuff. Look, I've been in school 11 years, and grad school was for planetary science. And I can tell you, I couldn't do half the stuff that was done 2,000 years ago, you know. And, you know, they weren't engineers or astronomers, except that they were both, you know. And uh, I just don't, I don't think it mattered then. I don't think it matters now. I think it's all about the person and how far that person is pushing something. Well, coming to the I term, though, amateur astronomer, people like, you know, I th- was Shoemaker-Levy, was he a amateur or professional? I don't, I don't know. know. But anyway, he discovered the comet yeah. that slammed into to Jupiter. Yeah. And then there was Percival Lowell, who actually started the Lowell Observatory in Arizona. I th- he was just a businessman, I think, uh, with no real training, but uh, started a professional observatory. Palomar, I think, has a similar history. So, you know, Private citizens, people just just love the stuff, uh, make huge contributions. But to call them an astronomer, I think is misleading. I hear crickets. Okay. Yeah, I just I thought you were I thought you were gonna have. Uh, no, I was done. I was waiting for the the onslaught of comments, but apparently we are. I have one. No, so you didn't thank win. You all. And look, here's the other thing. <laughs> Here's the other thing is that what universities do to try to cover it is they just say when somebody gets good enough at something, they're like, we're just going to give you an honorary degree. We're going to go ahead. And, oh, that. We're going to yeah, give I you know. an what honorary degree. I know. So now you're an astronomer like Benjamin Franklin. He didn't have any degrees. <laughs> right. Until everybody's like, you know what? Yeah, we need yeah. you on our team. I... And then Harvard and Yale both were like, get that son of a bitch a degree quick. We don't want people to know you can do this without us. 
Well, there was a time when all scientists were just rich people because they had the leisure time to poke around and uh, and just figure out the world. I mean, Darwin was one. These are all people who just had they you know they were they were country gentlemen who had the free time and the money to uh, fund all this you know research. What happens when I when I poke this thing? What happens when I build a twenty inch yeah. telescope? You know, yeah. Hers- uh, William Herschel was like that. So, yeah, you know, it's just that you know. In this day and age, uh, to be an astronomer, the amount of training that goes into it, it's important, and you need to make that distinction. So I don't know. Maybe we should just. We're going to do a podcast. We're going to bring an astronomer, and then we're going to bring you know someone who is an amateur doing real citizen science, and and we're going to just take the gloves off, man. And uh, yeah, let's do like one of those cage fighter things where we put them in and they go at it. You're going to get worked. (laughs) You're going to get worked, Tony. You should call in sick that day. Tim, it's okay. By the way, anytime that Tony says something, man, it's completely okay to just like attack him. Because I can take it. I I only say things that are true, so I can defend it. Dustin, Dustin has this. You hear this sort of squeak coming out of his ass because that's just air coming out, but not me. I'm I'm saying that's what that is. (laughs) All right. Well, what else we got to talk about on this podcast? About let's bringing it all the way. Tim, I uh, I want to know one last thing, man. Uh, I know we I know we've Mm -hmm. taken up your time here, but uh, what's the goal? You know, I know that you can say like, hey, it's never good enough, but where are you headed? Because I love watching this journey and I just want, give me the preview of the next chapter, man. What is it? I don't really think there is a, a goal, like a, I don't have an ending point. I just want to keep improving. So I, the next step is to get to darker skies, I think is yeah my next thing that I want to do. Well, that's why we got to get you in the remote observatory. equipment under... Yeah, I, I definitely want to get some sort of equipment out from underneath <laughs> these guys <laughs> that I have to deal with all the time. Yeah, well, we are currently working on three more remote observatories. So we just finished another one yesterday, and um, we are about to build three more. Um, and those are always first use for affiliates. So, um, you know, and they're they're made for the general oh, okay. public to, is, to use as well. But yeah, getting you on some of those, I mean, the big like 17 inch plane wave. And then we got some wide field systems. Actually, one of them's going out there with Tony out in Florida. So we're going to have every time zone covered in the U.S. now. Oh, and um, one in Florida, yeah, Florida. Yeah. Yeah. We are counting the days. Yep. Yep. So we're excited. Yes. And uh, we're going to get Tony into imaging. So yeah. this is going to be a fun thing. <laughs> I'm going to put smiley faces on all my nebulae and I'm not going to take any nebulae unless it has a smiley face in it. Smiley That's what face. I'm going to do. You're just going to yeah. stick emoji right in the middle. <laughs> so I'm going to flat field it such that when I divide by the flat field, here's a smiley face in there. Well, it was really cool. So I figured out this system, Tim, to get Tony imaging. And it was like, what I did was I set up a system and I had the computer ready with the, the mouse already on capture. And then I just put these little breadcrumbs uh-huh. of eyepieces leading from where Tony was and a glass of scotch. They were, they were pretty incredible yeah. eyepieces, And he just man. kept walking. He's like, oh, check this out. And then, you know, the last oh, one. 13 millimeter Nagler. The last one was sitting just above the mouse. And he clicked that button and he caught an image and he could not believe what he saw. <laughs> He, he I, was, I, was, I was waiting for you to say that he got full before he got to the button. <laughs> <laughs> no, but anyway. Yeah, he did. He tricked me. He totally tricked anyway, me. Anyway, Tim, thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us, man. I know we'll be, we'll be talking again yeah. real soon about the observatories and all the things we have going on. But uh, this was fun. Yeah, yeah this definitely. was fun. Yeah, definitely. Uh, thank you guys for having me on. 
And Tim, where can uh, the people that want to find you, where can they find you, Tim? Uh, they can find me on Instagram is the best place. It's uh, Tim, uh, T-I-M-M-1138. Hey, is that a reference to a movie, THX 1138, or did you just pick that yep. number? Yep. When I yeah. first started the Instagram, that's, a, that's what it's from. It's uh, my first name with my first uh, initial of the last name, and then... One one three eight. Yeah, I thought about uh, changing it, but everybody, you know, you get used nah, to the, too late what now. it looks You're like, and yeah, <laughs> so I just leave it. You're too famous now. You got to leave it. Yeah, THX eleven thirty eight is George Lucas's first movie. Yeah, um, yeah, so cool. All right, I'm glad I caught that. Okay, Tim. Well, thank you so much for taking time out. Keep imaging. Is it clear tonight, or have you looked yet? Ah, uh, no, this? it's cloudy. Uh, okay, good. So I don't feel bad no. that you gave us your time then. Thank you. <laughs> All Not right, a problem. Everybody. Happy to. All right. Well, we'll cut it there. On behalf of Dustin Gibson, this is Tony Darnell. I want to thank you all so much for listening to our humble podcast. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com. 